I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to The Carol Markowitz Show on iHeartRadio. We have to be aware of bad ideas, and that's why I'm sharing with you that I cringed through an article in The New York Times reviewing a new book about polyamory called More, so that you don't have to. A rich lady who lives in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is where we lived before we moved to Florida, so I can tell you Park Slope is where the worst of ideas are born, She goes out one night and flirts with a man in a bar. When she tells her husband about it, he suggests she sleep with the man and tell him about it. Mm. They proceed to open their marriage and have what sounds like the most horrific experiences ever. And they suggest you do the same. The husband admits he was not at all discerning about who he slept with when they first opened their marriage, but it doesn't really sound like the wife was either. At first, She mostly slept with men who were cheating on their wives. Great. And then she describes people like Carl, the German who pushes her to have a threesome with him and his fiance and then never calls her again. Or the French guy who refuses to wear condoms and likes to have sex in public bathrooms. And she ends up getting kicked out of a co-working space because you're really not supposed to have sex in there. And she talks about a younger guy who is well endowed but can't actually perform in bed. So hot. And then there's the part about her kids finding out that the parents have opened their marriage that just made me want to die. The truth is that in general, I'm very freewheeling about what you want to do with your own life. Are there people who will be happy with polyamory? I don't really believe it because it discounts human nature completely. But if that's what you're into and it works for you, go on, have fun. What bothers me is that marriage actual marriage where two people love and support each other and are actually happy together really never get the New York Times treatment. It's all unhappy marriages and unhappy people stepping out on their spouses and trying to convince the rest of us that this is the best way. I get that stories about happy people with functioning relationships and non-cringy sex isn't a story, but we have to wonder why that is. And something I think about is that most people still believe that 50% of marriages end in divorce, and it's completely not true. 
that was at its peak in the 80s. And I would say that part of that was cultural and portraying divorces like this fun, amazing thing you should try. But that number is actually about a third of marriages today. And that's genuinely a sharp decline. Part of the reason I started this show was because of all this negativity around marriage in our culture and the constant push of these kinds of stories that portray marriage as a burden and family life as something you need to shrug off in order to be happy. I like having guests on who are in happy marriages or hoping to get into one. I like showing that the better path is to find a real partner to have a balanced marriage and to get to be your actual self and not be scouring cheating websites to find rando men to fulfill something in you that just won't ever be satisfied. On this show, I hope to be the antidote to stories like the ones the New York Times shows you. And I thank you for listening. Coming up next, an interview with Annika Rothstein. Join us after the break. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to The Carol Markowitz Show on iHeartRadio. My guest today is Annika Hernroth Rothstein, 
Annika is an election advisor and author, CEO of the ad agency Nomad Ghana, and just an all-around badass. Hi, Annika. So nice to have you. So nice. What an introduction. I love it. <laughs> I added that last bit. No, I'm like, I, I kind of feel like I need to update my business card or something. <laughs> I agree. I definitely feel like I can leave this out already on your business card, honestly. No, I mean, it's so your, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're our first international guest on oh, the show. Really? And oh. you're, yeah, I mean, it's been all people in America thus far. And you're a Swedish woman in Ghana. How did that yes, happen? So, oh, wow. Um, by accident, is <laughs> in my life, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, the very short, the condensed version is that I had just gotten back from Venezuela. I was supposed to take a break because I had like an intense, as you know, like an intense time in Venezuela. I get a message. I remember the Venezuela the years. They, that was a lot. Um, so I was like, oh, I'm going to ch- chill out, like maybe write my second book or do something. And then I get a DM on Twitter from somebody who says, um, want to work? on elections in Africa, I feel like you would be a really great fit. Saw what you did in Venezuela. If you can survive that, you can do anything. And because I have no impulse control whatsoever, in the city, <laughs> I thought to myself, that sounds wild. Let's do that. And that is now four years ago. Wow. And some change. Yeah. So do you see yourself staying there? I don't know. I've learned not to to think too hard on these things because it just tends to not work out that way. Um, I gave myself five years when I came and it ended up like being a good situation for me. Initially, I said five years Mm -hmm. because five years is as like after five years, you live live somewhere. Maybe that's just my internal logic. But after five years, you're properly settled. And I haven't reached the right. level of maturity in life yet where I'm comfortable being properly settled. In anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think five years makes sense. Yeah, because it just felt it, it felt right. So I'm thinking that I'm going in six months. I'm, I'll take like a mini break somewhere and think about it and figure some stuff oh. out. But that's that's the level of planning that I'm at. Um, mm-hmm. Always. And so far, right. so good, kind of. So Annika's book is Exile. Uh, it's very, you could see it's very well worn. I, I read it a lot. Uh, it's that. Portraits of the Jewish Diaspora. Um, and it what it is, is it traces Jewish communities all around the world in different places that you wouldn't imagine there are Jewish communities. Um, so what would you say was your kind of most unique place that you visited and what what did you like about it? Well, I, I mean, Iran is the thing that stands out, I suppose, because it's it's a Jewish community that a lot of people think about, have opinions about, um, use as a tool for in various debates, whether it's for or against something. the The Persian Jews are, are and the Jews of Iran are 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 used a lot. You know, that's something I found after the fact, but being there, it impacted me. It made me a much more ardent Zionist, I think. I mean, I was pretty hard to court to begin with, but it made me understand, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I was sort of to the to the right of Genghis Khan before that, and then it just moved. Um, right. But I, most of us have never had an experience 
been able to to figure out what life is like before Israel or without Israel. Mm-hmm. Thank God. We don't know that. But being in Iran made me understand what my life would be like as a Jew were it not for the state of Israel. That was the, right. I could walk in their shoes for a moment. And I mean, of course, I could leave. Um, so right. it's different. But it made me understand the enormous freedom that comes with even me in the diaspora. For me to be a Jew, feel free to speak, act, be Jewish, speak out, act out, because I know that I have a life raft. You know, somebody watching my back. Yeah, there's always a backup, right? And I was able to spend two months with people who have no backup. I, Mm -hmm. it humbled me to what they have to do what they can't do, what they have to do, what they can't say, what they have to say, all of those things, which is why I'm today, I'm a start <laughs> defender of them and also very sensitive to when people speak about them, I would say. But it was, and then of course, I was able to go to the tomb of Esther and Mordechai, which was, you know, a tremendously emotional experience mm-hmm. to to be in an ancient Jewish community. And, and just, it felt, I mean, everywhere you go where there's Jews, that's home, you know, to some yeah. extent. But it was, it's more with the political aspects of it, the the atrocities, atrocities that they go through every day. But having your Shabbat meal in Tehran is something that will stay with me forever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's the most right. amazing experience. So you spent a lot of time in Venezuela, and I think you really quite have an affinity for the Venezuelan people. Is that fair to say? I feel like I've heard some real warmth from you about them. Um, what was that like? What was your, how long did you spend in Venezuela? Because I felt like you were there. I was there. Oh, yeah, I yeah. was there. And, and not like a long time ago either. Like it was, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it wasn't like pre-revolution. It was like Right. It recent, was like you know? four and a yeah. half years ago, I guess, now that I mm-hmm. left uh, or even less. And I mean, it's it's affinity, it's passion, it's love for them. And um, I found it felt like home. I guess maybe that also speaks to my love of chaos, um, um, chaos and noise. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so maybe that's between me and my therapist. <laughs> what what went on there? <laughs> but but it just I it was one of those places, and the same thing with Iran. I was supposed to be there for like a week, and it turned into two months, which was ill-advised in a lot of ways. The same thing happened in Venezuela because I was supposed to go there, cover. I came there right after Juan Guaido had announced. So I was like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to write about it. Maybe go to shul and we're done. And I stayed a year because I just could not stop digging at it because it's one of those places where you think you get it and then something happens and then you understand oh so it's all shit like i thought that you know i came there i think i was still (laughs) i still wanted to believe that there's like a good and and a bad and you know Mm -hmm. that i there could be just this unequivocally good side and somebody is fighting in the freedom and justice thing of it all of course we all love that on the the curve of that drama is it speaks to it all of us. Do you want to tell us about Absolutely. that, or is that is that a touchy? <laughs> well, 
and it's not touchy. I mean, I was deported. <laughs> um, so I was so, deported. as you are, right? Uh-huh. Wait, I love the first deported, the by the way. <laughs> the first <laughs> time I was deported. <laughs> yes. Because obviously that was not the only time Annika was deported. <laughs> no, it was the signs of two kidnappings, one deportation, one illegal entry, and one warrant for my arrest by the Sabine, which is, that's why I ultimately left after a year because I was deported. And of course you can't mm-hmm. enter again, technically, but it's quite easy to smuggle oneself in through into venezuela from colombia usually people go out as we know usually um, but i <laughs> usually but i actually yeah. i had the help of a rabbi i won't mention his name but mm-hmm. a, a rabbi helped me right sneak into venezuela across the bridge so i came mm-hmm. back um i got kidnapped again for the second time after having done that and then they found out I was there illegally and used that as an excuse to issue a warrant for my arrest, the intelligence services, the city. And then that even I realized that you don't want to get disappeared in Venezuela right. by people who are trained by Cubans. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I, I, I remember for... thinking I need Annika to get out of there like right now. And that's an yeah, that, that was um, there. Was, again, I knew there were you. Obviously, I love that there's that, that there's this amazing, you know, Jewish Swedish woman who goes to these crazy places and tells us the stories. But like a lot of people, I'm sure in your life, you you worry me. You definitely worry me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was there was a time when during that time my best friend was a very calm and collected woman wrote me and said i would like you to send me your funeral plans as i assume <laughs> that i'm the one that ended up fully call. and at that point i realized she, the fan not she sounds russian honestly <laughs> yes she was very light she said i would like to know i'm assuming you want to be flown mm-hmm. to israel so please let me know how i should go about that but but that was the point at which when you had to negotiate your exit with a foreign intelligence service, which was what I was doing, I, I hid in a brothel for a few days and negotiated my way out. The only leverage I had was my Twitter following mm-hmm. and basically putting them on blast and 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 basically their anti-Semitism because they believed that I was much more connected than I actually am. Mm. So that was because I had been accused of being, as always, a Zionist entity, spy, et cetera. Right. You know, the user wrong, right. the usual stuff. Uh, interloper, yeah. You know, the, <laughs> that's just what they usually, mm-hmm. the, the classics, the hits. Um, so yeah. so I, I used that to my advantage and basically played that side up dramatically and said, you know, if you do not allow me like safe passage, the you know the Mossad will come down on you, which I never doubt that anybody <laughs> like, would come. To I totally know them. <laughs> I totally know. <laughs> no, I I can tweet at Mossad right now. Actually, exactly. so, let me go. So so there. So that was it. That was the end of that year, and a lot of people yeah. were very relieved on both sides that right that I, I'm sure. we're gonna take a quick break and be right back on the carol markowitz show 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I don't know if I've told you this before, but I've been to Venezuela a few times when I was young. Oh. Um, it's actually our first trip well so you know i'm born in russia i moved to america my parents super poor um but their whole life goal is as soon as they make any money is to travel and our very first international trip or i think it might have been our very first trip anywhere is to venezuela and we get there and we get to the caracas hilton and it is Oh my God, magical. A pool. I, I don't think I'd ever swam in a pool until that point. And then we take like oh, a wow. rickety plane to Canaima National Park, which is, you know, red water and piranhas and, and just the most beautiful thing ever. But for me, I was like, can we go back to that pool at the Hilton? Because <laughs> that was way better than this hut that we're sleeping in at night. Obviously, um, yeah. So I, I have warm, warm memories of Venezuela, and it was a Russian hotspot. And when I say Russian, I mean ex-Soviet Jews who live in New York, right. not not Russians in Russia. But Venezuela was a big tourist destination for a long time. 
until until it wasn't. Um, right. So I, I hope that they get back to, you know, being a country where you can be safe and I can take my kids on a rickety plane to Kanaima again someday. Because it is that would, that would be the the, the goal. <laughs> it's the goal, and and it's also even now when I live in Ghana, my favorite place in Ghana is a region that lives exactly like Venezuela. So it's really it's what's, the, like what's the region? The Volta region. So it has the same, you know, the mountain and river and rainforest, and it's both slow and fast paced at the same time in a very strange way. There's like an intensity to it. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, I mean, I guess there's some irony in the places that I love the most are places that, that maybe I could get into those countries again, but I'm not sure how I would be allowed to leave. So the list of those countries are growing. Which so, is really the most important part, you know? It, I found that it is. I've learned through the yeah. years that, that leaving is really essential or leaving on your own terms. Right. Is, is so, essential. Yeah. So a question that I ask all of my guests is, what do you think is our largest cultural or societal problem in America? But obviously you're not American. So what would you say is worldwide the largest cultural or societal problem? And is it solvable? Oh, wow. Okay. Worldwide. That's a lot of responsibility. I mean, I think I would <laughs> you can pick a country if you want. <laughs> well, I'm happy to. You eat in, you know, Sweden's biggest cultural problem is. You know, I, I, I'd get canceled if I said. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> but I mean, as a person, you, you know this, I've written extensively about it that as a kid, I spent my summers in, in Dallas and Texas. Mm-hmm. And it kind of started my whole love affair with the US and. It was so drastically different because Sweden in like the 90s, early 90s was a closed country. I mean, a lot of socialism, a lot of like one channel yeah. on the TV, one kind of ketchup, that kind of thing. And right. you're right. Um, and I got to Texas as like an eight-year-old. What a country. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, whatever this is, like, put it straight into my veins. <laughs> like, I was, <laughs> was the most amazing. Like, I'm converting to American right now. <laughs> it was the most amazing thing I've ever experienced. And yeah. not just because of And also just to have Texas, yeah, to have Texas be your first it's American experience. Like, the most American, you know, extra. It was amazing. Yeah. And I kept going back and going back, and and I stayed with my dad's best friend from from high school. My dad went to high school in Dallas. This guy was, it wouldn't happen today. Uh, single man mm-hmm. in his fifties, uh, hardcore Republican. We basically watched the news, went to the Alamo, uh, went to the school, wow. the book depository. Like he was like taking me through. Like, yeah, we watched the OJ trial together. Like there was a lot of like different. Wow, memories. Um, <laughs> but the thing that I I fell in love with was how unapologetic it all was, right? Like there was mm-hmm. clear identity. I understood what, what it was. Like some of it was loud and strange and a lot, but I understood yeah. what it was because people understood who they were, which to me as mm-hmm. a Swedish person- that's so big. Yeah, and as a European, that's like, wow, people are saying like, this is who I am. Standing by it. 
I, I had a shirt that said, don't mess with Texas. I'm like, okay, I get love this, that, right? Like, I get this. <laughs> and to juxtapose that with Europe, it's a dramatic thing. And I, what I see today, because I went through most of my life, assuming that everything else can change. Europe changes a lot mm-hmm. through my adulthood, growing into an adult that has changed drastically. But I knew that the U.S. would always stay the same, I thought. Mm-hmm. And what I see now in the U.S. is very reminiscent of what I've seen in Europe over the past, let's say, 10, 15 years, which is lack of identity. So interesting. And it's the thing that has, because we've all the movements you see in the U.S. now, all this extremism, this side-taking, the vitriol, the bizarre identity politics, we live with that. Like, I've lived this story already. Like, I've seen the movie already. Never in my wildest dreams would I think that this would take place in the U.S. But I think it's, although the European lack of identity comes from a different wound, in my opinion, which is the the Second World War and sort of the lessons, Mm -hmm. the wrong lessons that were taken from that, they kind of cast off nationalism and national identity and all of these things. Right. I'm I'm working very hard Mm -hmm. not to make this like a TED talk. So I'm kind of skipping it. But (laughs) but what I... But I'm like in my head, I'm like, after this, I'm going to message Annika and say, you have to write about this. Like, you must write something about this. This is such a good point that I really don't think I've seen made elsewhere. Well, what I saw... Go on, please. Yeah. What I saw is, and I'm I'm, going to take one thing that to me when I watched it as a person who has strong links to the to the Middle East and to Europe as a Jew, all of these things, although I hate saying as a Jew, so let's just... As a Jew, know. right, yeah. Uh, when I, I get it. When yeah. I saw Obama's Cairo speech, I was like, wait, 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 wait. This is different. This is like a crack in the veneer. This is a way of speaking about America and the world that I don't, and I'm not American, but I somebody was like, wholeheartedly adopted America and has, yeah. has a love affair with that country. This is not the identity that I know it to be. It is apologetic. Wow. It is moving away from like, oh, we're not all that. We don't want to be too involved. We don't want to be this. We don't want to be that. It's mm-hmm. it, it was this thing. He was distancing himself and, and by extension, the U.S. from all the things that we desperately need the U.S. to be because it's applicable to draw like a very, <laughs> a very perhaps strange conclusion from it. Me as a, like, as a European Jew, I learned very early, you know, if I become less of myself, they're going to punch me twice as hard. Nothing good will ever come of me saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. I don't like Israel. Yeah. I'm not that Jewish. I'm Jewish. Don't worry about it. Right. Your food. I'll yeah. Eat. They don't even kill you last at that point anymore. You know, right. <laughs> like there are no like like my mom always said, there are no first class tickets on the train to Auschwitz. And I understand right. it's a very harsh statement, but it's also. No, it, it's real. Uh, it, it's so real. what it is. And so what I loved about the U.S. was like, OK, sometimes it's like that guy that we sometimes think is an asshole. I'm, I'm not sure I can, I'm allowed to say that, but otherwise. You're, you're totally allowed to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. But we respect him because he is a man of pol- We know what he's about. And we also know that, yeah. like, if I'm backed into a corner, 
this is the guy I'm calling. So yeah, we understand that entity. And now none of that exists anymore. So it's like the same thing that I see in Europe that for 15 years we've been in a tailspin. Nobody when yeah. pressed in Sweden specifically, if somebody asks what is it to be Swedish, they go, I don't know. I'm saying right. I'm Swedish is a compliment. In if you say right. to somebody you're so unsweeted, that's a compliment in Sweden because we have wow. some disdain for ourselves. And that is, but yeah, I know you probably wanted to. Do you see the pendulum swinging? No, no, I love this answer. I think this is like amazing and you re- definitely should write about this. And I'm going to read it and share it. Um, but do you think the pendulum will swing? Because I have to say, there was right before Brexit, which, you know, Everybody was like, no way Brexit's going to pass. Like right. the polls were all like, absolutely no. Mm-hmm. Um, a British lefty friend of mine posted something like, what's the big deal about being British? Like, why do we need to be on our own? Like, why can't we just like join, you know, join, be, stay in the European Union? Nothing makes us that special. And right. I swear when he posted that, I was like, oh, wow, this thing is going to pass. Like yeah. nobody wants to think they're not special. Nobody wants to think there's nothing unique about their culture. Like I was like, this is this is passing. That was my my moment. And when it did, I was like, yeah, I mean, th- this is it. British people want to feel British and Swedish people, I, I think somewhere in there want to feel Swedish. I think that just like what's become well, acceptable what- to say. And every time... Every time a right-wing party wins in Europe, it's like, how could this happen? Well, I can tell you how this happens. Well, well, the problem is that in lieu of national identity, everybody is the main character. Every single thing is the main character. The the goal should always be to have a strong national identity so that we unite under a certain... Now we're living in a house without walls. You know, everything kind of goes, right? And... And yeah. with national identity comes sense of purpose, unity, mm-hmm. religion, most likely, all of these things that are values that all of trickle it. down. And when you yeah. take that away, you know, a, a vacuum will 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 long to fill itself with something. And it's all right. these little pieces that come in and where everybody is the main character. Everybody needs to replace us because we need that identity. And it's been taken from us in Europe, or we gave it up, rather. Um, and is the pendulum swinging? Well, I think that what I see in Europe is that, yeah, we have fractions, right? Like, there are fractions where there's very strong identity in this corner over here, in that corner over there, but that's not what we're looking for. I have had a strong sense of paradise lost for, I don't know, I guess it's 20 years now. Oh, God forbid. Mm-hmm. Because I grew up in a place that was very, very different. It wasn't the most exciting place, but I knew what it was. And that, I don't think I, in my lifetime, I will ever see again. We haven't talked about it, but you have these two beautiful teenage sons. Yes. Um, and you live this exciting, amazing life. You're, you know, CEO of a company and you're just mm-hmm. awesome. Do you feel like you've made it? I don't think it's in the Jewish nature to ever feel you've made it. I feel like I hover around 75% on a good day. Like that's a really good day. Uh, On a bad day, I'm like a 34 perhaps. So, and I don't expect (laughs) that to ever change. Like I I recognize that there are some aspects of my, like I have moments when I think, wow, this is crazy. This is amazing. 
but it's like you know you know like jewish parents when you come home and you have like straight a's and then one b in gym or in my case an m in gym then the (laughs) the focus is the gym like nobody that's I, I am that Jewish parent. There we go. <laughs> like we're flat. The, the joke in my house is like an A. Why not like you know? Or it's like a hundred. Why not a hundred and five? You know, it works. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. uh, my dad every on every birthday I've ever had. Like that used to be the running joke that he his only question like no happy birthday was always is this the year you're getting a PhD? And because it's like <laughs> embarrassing to be the person without a PhD. So, so so I think that it's kind of in, in one's nature to not feel like, because I don't expect in my life to ever feel like, oh, I made it. I'm cool now. I'm good. Um, so, but if I can maintain a 75% where I like feel that that's the average, I'd be very pleased with that. So end here with your best tip for my listeners on how they can improve their lives. Well, so the tip is as far I thought about this and I was like, oh, I have to be like really profound. And then I, I thought, no, I have to be real. I know it's a lot of pressure. But then I remembered. So it's actually I, I'm the youngest of three girls. And my oldest sister gave me the best advice I ever got. And it, it changed my entire life. And it, I was about 21, 22. And I was in my very like navel gazing phase that lasted about 10 years who, like, who among us right, right? yeah it was a little, but it was also like i was in the catch face where it was a lot like dad did this and mom did this and well me and like i was really like heavy into therapy and heavy into myself and heavy into what everybody else owed me and i guess she got sick of it like they had coddled me for a long time because again i'm the baby so i expected that and then she kind of, yeah, she had a nap and she said, I'd like you to make a list of the five best qualities in yourself, the five things about yourself that you're the most proud of. And I made this, I really thought about it because again, I love thinking and talking about myself. So I was happy to get this assignment because <laughs> that was like pretty much my object in that. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm independent, I'm intelligent, I'm a survivor, like all of these things. And she said, okay. And now I'd like you to tell me how many of these are because you had a happy childhood. Mm-hmm. And it shut me down. <laughs> it shut me down. Yeah. I- I'm going to use that. A happy childhood. It really does, right. you know, lead to a lot of other good things. So she looked at me and she was like, yes. Yeah, so things were kind of shit. Okay. Dig where you stand. Mm-hmm. Say thank you very much. I'm an adult now and I'm going to go deep with the world deal with my shit and take my own responsibility and I like it it really it was the slap in the face that I needed but I've applied it I've applied it because it's I'm an adult which means that whatever goes wrong now it's on me whatever goes right is on me and that sense of responsibility that's the worst part of adulthood I hate it (laughs) I mean it's it sucks (laughs) But but what I found is it helped me to get out of the place that so many of us get stuck in for a long time and getting back to what we spoke about before and what we see going on in the U.S. and in Europe and everywhere right now. I think a lot of people would do well 
to kind of apply that in one's life and, and to realize that, yeah, it's easy. If we look even for a second, we can find people to blame for all kinds of things. But once you get out of that business, it, it leads to really positive places. And uh, so that's the best advice I ever got. Yeah, it's really great. Thank you so much for coming on, Annika. Her name is Annika Hernroth Rothstein. She's fantastic. Check out her book, Exile. She's Truth and Fiction on Twitter. Really good follow. Thank you so much for coming on. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us on The Carol Markowitz Show. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.